Welcome to the first uh, edition of 2021 Cinetopia podcast. Um, I'm Amanda, uh, founder of Cinetopia, and I'm here with uh, Jim Ross, co-producer of the show. Jim, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, looking forward to continuing the new lockdown <laughs> starting 2021 as 2020 ended. <laughs> yeah, we were hoping to announce a few exciting things, um, but you know, at least we have the podcast and we have movies and so we can continue to watch. Um, but we'll hopefully be um, announcing some, some things next month um, while we wait out um, some, some future plans and whatnot. I'm also here with Mark Nelson, um, a regular on our show. And uh, Mark, how are you doing? Not so bad, Amanda. Thanks for having me again. And um, we're also here with Chris uh, Evans, um, producer of, uh, well, Scottish film producer and uh, a regular on our show as well. How are you, Chris? Good to see you again. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Amanda. Nice to be here. Uh, nice to see all your lovely faces. And uh, looking forward to chatting about some films. Yeah. Um, so we are reviewing three films uh, right now um, that are available online. Uh, One Night in Miami, um, it's on Amazon Prime, uh, directed by Regina King. It's her first uh, film that she's directed, uh, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets uh, by the Ross brothers, Bill Ross and Turner Ross. And that's out on Curzon and um, the new documentary by Sam Pollard, MLK FBI. Um, and I think that's out on various places, but definitely you can check it out at the BFI player. Um, so Jim got the opportunity to sit down with Alison Gardner, director of Glasgow Film, and she um, oversees the Glasgow Film Festival, which is coming out um, in, in its regular time, but this time online. But there's some really exciting um, world premieres and stuff. And I think, we'll, as, as per usual, we'll try to do a Glasgow Film um, dedicated uh, episode next month as well. But Alison gave uh, a chat with Jim, so we'll hear that later during this, uh, during this show. So um, all that in this exciting episode. for asking how I'm doing, first person today. Anybody want a drink, a shot, tell a story? You're making me realize I haven't smelled that smell in a long time. What kind of a party is it if an Australian guy doesn't take his pants off? I've been saying that for years. The best thing is to just get your heart totally smashed and broken like a couple of times, and then you're good, and then you don't care anymore. What are you doing? All right, so the first film we're going to review is Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, um, currently out of Curzon, but it came highly recommended by Mark um, on our last episode. So Mark, tell us a little bit about the film and uh, we'll, we'll chat about it. Sure thing. So I will 
begin with a synopsis as the film play as you know the film plays and then I'll go into the circumstances of production because I feel like it's in this it's a necessity for this film so the ostensible subject of Bloody Nose Empty Pockets is a bar in Las Vegas called the Roaring Twenties which is closing it's its final day of trading and so all the regulars convene to their normal spaces in the bar over the course of the morning when it opens, the afternoon, and it rolls into the evening, rolls into morning again. And there's this fantastic kind of twilight vibe to it that the space that they hold sacred is being taken away from them for commercial interests. Uh, Las Vegas constantly changing. It doesn't seem to have any fixed identity, whatever. Um, so this is one of the casualties of you know city development in a way. And so the film has a lot of very um, entertaining on one side and then very sad moments on others uh, where the kind of bar regulars are caught in a kind of verite style where the camera sort of just sweeps to them for a second and then bounces away. Sometimes it stays longer if there's a sort of emotional import to the situation that's being caught. There are blindingly funny non sequiturs and single lines that we'll maybe get into when we, uh, you know, when more people start speaking about it here. But I'll say that the circumstances of production change this entirely because it's not filmed in Las Vegas. It's filmed in New Orleans, in a bar in New Orleans, and all of the bar regulars are New Orleans bar regulars who have been sort of assigned positions in the film by the directors. They met the directors, got to know them, and then were sort of given, quote, roles in the film, even though what's fascinating to me, at least texturally in the film, is how it mixes on one hand great aleatory spontaneous moments possibly sauce induced moments um, but also seems to have this pre-preparedness also has this kind of planned design and this is kind of you're kind of clued into this as a viewer very early on when the big Australian bloke comes in and hands a brown package to the the barman and says would you mind watching this for me and the barman says do I want to know what's in here? And the Australian says, nope. <laughs> and so that's it. It's a, it's a fictional device sort of nested right in, the, right in the beginning of the film. And yeah, so that then changes the, the texture of the film because you realize that these are, there's, there's a lot of truth to it. It feels truthful. The emotions feel real, but it's make-believe in a way. It's pretend the maybe the people became friends while they were filming, but they weren't friends beforehand. And there are moments where people who are supposedly drunk are keeping to a script in a way, because there's one, one gentleman who has this line about Nevada and he's reading from these cards and he's meant to be heavily inebriated and yet he's keeping to the script and he's not accidentally saying, oh, we're actually in New Orleans. So there's, I think, a very clever um, construction in the editing as well. And um, you obviously love it. Uh, uh, what does everybody else um, think of this film in general? Yeah, I mean, this this is exactly the kind of documentary I love. I actually didn't do any reading on this film beforehand, and so that's completely new information to me that, that <laughs> there is a construction behind it. So that's actually really, really interesting to learn. Um, I myself spent many years working in bars. My boyfriend still is a, is a bar manager, um, and... I just saw so many of the bar flies that he has at his bar in this film. Like it was so, uh, so many characters that were kind of recognizable. Obviously I'm talking about people in 
in Edinburgh, Scotland, but you know, the sorts of um, folks that kind of gravitate to these spaces, there is a lot of similarities the world over, it seems. Um, and uh, I, I think the way that it was filmed was kind of perfect for what it was. It was very rough and ready. It was like, they weren't, a lot, they weren't too afraid about us kind of seeing the cameramen. There's like a mirror behind the bar, right? So you occasionally catch the, the uh the director or, or i don't know if it was self-shot um and uh they don't hide away from that they kind of they zoom in on the on the um folk in the bar and it kind of it gets a little bit grainy and it's not necessarily the best footage but it kind of works for this like slightly seedy slightly sleazy las vegas um and the australian character that you mentioned like i just he had me in in like belly aching laughter throughout the film um <laughs> Yeah, he was he was incredible. And then it's also it's quite sad and it, it hits on some like really key issues. It's got, you know, a lot of disillusioned characters. There's sort of this generation war thing going on between some of the characters, these uh, older guys trying to give wisdom to the younger guys and the younger guys are throwing it back in their face and sort of saying, well, you know, you've ruined the earth and like this is what we're kind of left with. Um, and and ultimately the ending as well. I felt it it really again speaking as someone who's like worked in a bar and you've got these people that you know you give so much time and so much energy to every day. You chat to them, you know their life stories. But ultimately, when it gets to closing time, you just want to close and you want to go home and you want to get into bed. And you kind of feel that at the end, where there's I think the the balance between the people who uh, run the bar and their feeling towards the loss of the space versus the people who, you know, this is the space they go to every day, it's their home. You kind of get that in that final moment between um, the gentleman that, that, well, appears to sort of live there maybe, um, and uh, the woman who just wants to close up shop and go home because her son's sleeping in the back of her car. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's so warm, but it's also, so uh so sad i think in many ways yeah i mean i think totally like i agree with that i find it quite you know i mean it has it has its moments of humor and so forth but i find it quite i find it quite sad um it's also it it, it kind of nudges and winks at the um the fact that it's a bit screwy because it, it opens with the um you know the words from the Declaration of Independence: "We hold these truths to be self-evident." You know, which is quite, you know, which is a quite a interesting way to open it up. I, it makes, and I think, like we discussed this off-air when we were doing, I think it was the last show, I forget, but when we were looking at Yomio Corpo, which is another kind of hybrid documentary, which I think had we not known that going in, or at least certainly, I mean, speaking for myself. I would have assumed it wasn't a documentary. This one, however, despite all the kind of like fabricated elements of it, I would have, it's, it's kind of the flip side of that coin. I would never have get it to me. I'd, you know, unless you were like really paying ridiculously close attention, I don't think I would have really realized that. And I think this is, you come back to that discussion we had the last time about what exactly is it trying to do? Like what truths is it trying to capture? What is it? And, and for my money, I think Bloody Nose Empty Pockets does that a lot better than that one did. And I was really very impressed with it. Even down to the little things that they choose to f focus on in and around the bar, you know, they all stop and focus on 
you know, a Jeopardy question about Native Americans, it will give uh, a little bit of room for, like, there's a guy at the, the bar who, and I, I actually must admit, there was one scene that hit rather differently watching it after the events at the, the Capitol um, last week was when sort of like the guy at the bar basically starts talking about Trump and says they're going to impeach him, you know. And it's just like, you know, obviously you've got all that, um staged factor but it's just it seems to have this weird prescience about it it seems to be like almost kind of like capturing the the mood of med like then distilling it down for want of a no pun intended um distilling it down into this this bar environment so any of the staged elements which you know i wouldn't have picked up on if i didn't know about them and clearly as carissa said like she she didn't know that going into it, it clearly clearly is the case i was pretty impressed with it i thought it captured i I thought it really captured something both sad but also amusing and just you know i was really pretty impressed with it um i mean i have to say this like once i watched it i was like that is a mark film and like (laughs) definitely one of your favorites i was it did feel a lot like a bar version of the task at points (laughs) i think I kept thinking yeah. of the task, but then I kept thinking about how much more I appreciated this one versus the task, you know? Fair, uh, fair. But it, yeah, but in terms of like a construction that is also feeling in somewhat organic, an organic experience or something or or true to life. And I think that also goes back to the, the, the things that Carice was saying. I've spent, I, you know, I spent a lot of time working in restaurants and bars but I also spent a lot of time in bars like that, you know, of, like especially in New York and dive bars or whatnot. And um, and there's just like, there's a community and a like a timeline that goes forward. Like the longer you spend in an evening in a certain place or the more you get comfortable with that and how, how important, I'm just very nostalgic for like American bars pre-COVID, you know, <laughs> because it's like this, I just kept thinking, gosh, you know, like you can't do that right now or, you know, it's not the same. And um, it's, it, it did, I think I, you know, I read your article before, so it, it did, I wouldn't have probably cut, caught those things that you mentioned of it being fabricated. But as I watched it, I did see things like, I just felt it was staged, you know, there were elements like what that wouldn't be on the TV unless it was a hipster bar and like, you know, East Village or something like that. Like we're not putting an archive, you know, film on the TV or, or whatnot. And obviously the way the stuff was shot and similarly to the fact I felt with Il Mio Corpo, it definitely was so pretty. But I'll have to say like everything about that film staged or not, I think we, we could have done a similar documentary unstaged of a local bar in a place like Vegas or New Orleans and had a fairly similar kind of, you know, experience of that hangout movie. Um, I think the look of it, I was saying when we talked about clemency, you know, like of making a very ugly kind of place or a place that you would go by on the side of the road and not feel like, you know, it's is gorgeous. And the, the feeling of that film is so beautiful. I probably will be inspired by it for many years. I kind of think of like certain, you know, photographers like William Klein and, or, you know, and, and the stuff that he did. And, and there's this energy and of the way that this film was shot that really resonated with me. And I think I'll probably be going back to that film more than a lot of films we've seen 
or I've seen. So I'm I'm really really happy you brought this to our, our attention, and I'm I'm glad that we saw it. So. Oh, I'm I'm very glad too. This this went over far far easier than I thought it was going to. Um, <laughs> the, the the great thing that I think everyone has mentioned is that although there's an element of staging, and I was kind of I was thinking when I was writing that piece about the film whether to mention that in a way because does it constitute a changing of the experience? But if it constituted a change in the experience in a sort of profound sense, then clearly that would have been mentioned in the film at some point. There would have been. A moment where you realize that you know they are filming you know they're all they're all kind of in on the in on the task in a way not to use a pun but they're they're kind of you'd see a moment where the preparedness was revealed and since it's not it's perfectly legitimate to watch this film and then not read anything about it afterwards and think oh yeah you know a good a very good doc because it captures the feeling of losing a specific uh, you know significant place in your life so I think generously and so specifically that it, it doesn't need that information. I thought the information was significant and I thought it like changes the experience and um, you begin to realize certain parts of it are more contained and I think stronger than if they had been, um, you know, just caught on the fly. I think for instance, um, the person who Carice mentioned, Michael, who's the sort of the first person in in the morning and the last person to leave almost 24 hours later. Um, he, he is really important for this. And I think in as much as it is marshaled around any one presence, any one either character or social actor, depending on how you want to view um, his position, it's sort of marshaled around him in a way. Um, and the first time I watched that, I was a little bit frustrated by this because I thought that's such a self-conscious performance that he's giving that he kind of begins the day in great spirits, meeting old friends who are coming back to the bar for the first time in ages. And uh, you can see there's a kind of buoyancy in his presence. Then he gets quite dejected and his kind of swings of mood match the film's swings of mood so closely in a really important way, because it seems like time kind of just stops moving for him at a certain point, it seems to dilate for him at a certain point. And he kind of just spends a lot of time on the couch observing in a, in a, you know, in a hump, reading Eugene O'Neill. And um, he has this kind of heart to heart moment with a guy who has um, eyeballs tattooed on his eyelids, uh, where he says like, the earliest moment you can get out, stop coming to these places. And you, like, these are, if it's not a true story, it is true in a wider sense. Um, and something specifically about this too, is because there's very artfully interesting uh, sort of interspliced um, location footage of Las Vegas, which you know is very convincing. Like the first time you, the first time I was watching this, I was like, okay, yeah, okay, Las Vegas film. Um, but on second thought, on second watch, I should say, the the aspect of this is like an amazing movie about Vegas becomes clearer because what's the best way to make a Vegas movie but to fake it? You know, like that's that seems that seems um, so significant to my experience of the film and i think to all of our experiences of it yeah i um the, 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 i think something else the film benefits from from like having the presentation it does despite staged elements is there are certain things that it captures like when there's conversations going on where i think if you were to try and do it in a and that like a, like a very obviously narrative film it would be way too on the nose. It wouldn't ring true. Um, you know, and I'm thinking about bits when they're discussing about like generations ruining the earth. And then there's another bit where they get into an altercation. Like, you, you know, it's like the younger folk in the bar is in like, you know, shut up yourself involved little 
punk and stuff like that. And there's, it's very, it's very obvious what the dynamics are. But I think if you were to put that in a narrative film, I don't think it, it, it would seem it would seem too convenient and too on the nose. I think with this presentation style, it works. And I think maybe the reason that I've reacted better to this than Il Mio Corporal, which don't be wrong, is a film I enjoyed fine, but it's more. I think when you have this element of the hybrid thing, the thing that people worry about, I mean, certainly I do, and I think this is what people generally worry about, is whether in some way it's being dishonest, right? Now, in the case of Il Mio Corpo, I think you could have that argument. And I think you could have that argument about whether it's not being fully truthful. I don't think you can have that with this. Um, Sure, there's staged elements, but I don't think you could accuse it of lacking honesty. To, despite that presentation for me yeah i mean I, I guess you could make a non-fiction film it, again like it kind of just reminds me of dazed and confused as well and this kind of hangout sort of feeling of a film also i just and back to our love of you know these fly on the wall kind of films like frederick weissman you know it's it's just very much about a, a like a public space and a community and and you know the the intricacies of that kind of stuff but as you said it's very sad and i i suppose maybe there's so many sad things going on right now that this was kind of a nostalgic and like i i know there's terrible problems and people should stay away but you know there's there's very much of like any any bar america you know that that um you know that there's a community there and there's something really valuable to that to that um to to that experience so really yeah a really interesting film um um you know uh, i i'm i'm keen to continue to look back at it and think more about it and you can see it on curzon um right now so check it out let us know what you think Violence is self-defeating. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. You know, when you construct a man as a great man, there's nothing almost more satisfying than also seeing him as the opposite. When the National Archive puts government documents up on the web, one has to confront them. Tapes from the hotel rooms, FBI reports, those are pieces of information that we shouldn't have. The FBI was most alarmed about King because of his success. He realized how sick this country was. We were trying to reveal the truth about segregation. J. Edgar Hoover is famous for saying that he feared the rise of a black messiah. The FBI says it's clear Martin Luther King Jr. is the most dangerous Negro in America, and we have to use every resource at our disposal destroy him. The next film we're going to review is MLK FBI, a new film by Sam Pollard, currently on BFI Player. Carice, tell us a little bit about this film. Yeah, so MLK FBI um, is an archival documentary about Martin Luther King, um, and I guess more specifically the way in which the FBI featured in his kind of rise within the civil rights movements. Um, it focuses very much in on how the FBI use surveillance to try control and kind of change the narrative on anything that they perceived as a threat against the state. Um, so I guess if Martin Luther King's the, the protagonist of the story, then his, his direct antagonist is J. Edgar Hoover. 
um, who served as the director general for the FBI for, I think it was around 40 years. He was, I think he served under like about eight presidents. Um, obviously this is very much around the kind of Lyndon B. Johnson days. Um, and uh, yeah, sort of plots how that surveillance uh, sort of changed its course depending on what the FBI saw as the weak point in threats against the state. Um, uh, it's pretty classic, I guess, in terms of its format. You know, it's uh, it uses obviously footage of Martin Luther King's speeches, um, his public appearances on TV. Um, and it also cleverly weaves in a couple of films from the time uh, about the FBI. It, you know, it, it shows us that this is, this is really like what's happening in, in America at this point. There's the House and American um but you set up communism's a big threat uh left-wing civil rights movement's a big threat um, and these these are the uh the main issues kind of facing the more maybe conservative uh uh government uh republican if you will <laughs> um uh, well i mean what do you guys think of it i like this a lot um i think as much as anything else right i i i didn't know any of this really um, you know, I mean, the, the most I know about J. Edgar Hoover is the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio played him in a film, quite frankly. Um, so to watch this is kind of galling. And I think if you don't know about it, that's, you know, kind of the point of it. I, I like the construction of it as well. I think I quite like the fact that it went through in chronological order. The reason being that, as you say, the, the way in which the way in which this information that the FBI were gathering was to be used against King changes, right? And it just, it kind of gets to the point that it would, they would do anything really, um, you know, cause it starts off with him in his association with uh, Sam Levison, who I think was involved in communist politics in the States. And it kind of, so it starts off as this kind of analysis of, the way America's always had this kind of like bogeyman in communism, you know, it was communism then, it's socialism now, right? But essentially it's anybody who's not really aligned with the the political orthodoxy, shall we say. Um, it's not afraid to, without sort of like overtly damning people, maybe with the exception of, of Hoover, it's not afraid to kind of like get across people's complicity in these activities right you know you know multiple mentions are made of the fact that the attorney general for a large stretch of this um this film's timeline was robert kennedy bobby kennedy um and you know his involvement the fact that he needed to sign off on a lot of this stuff like it doesn't gloss over that it um you know there's a lot of talk about kind of like lyndon b johnson's role in the civil rights movement but it also gets across quite how um his role and his opinion of Martin Luther King shifts. Um, I find it really compelling. And I think that's really what the point of this documentary is. And it achieves that uh, quite well. If I'm going to play devil's advocate slightly, my only complaint with it is there are a lot of voices in this film and they generally take the form of voiceover um, without knowing, you know, and some of them are very obvious, you know, like right at the end of the film, you get a little tiny voiceover from like, you know, James Comey, right? So and unless, unless you know who these people are already, I did sometimes find it a little hard to parse what perspective they were coming at it from. You know, like there's one part where 
there's several points where uh, I think it's Beverly Gage says, if you look at this from the point of view of the law enforcement agencies, and I take her, like, you know, it's, it's a very valuable point to make, but without knowing kind of how she's approaching this discussion, it does kind of like make you set, set up and kind of, in me anyway, kind of like, well, wait on, where's this going? Um, so if it was up to me, I think I'd maybe want a little bit more about what perspective the narration is coming from a little bit. Um, but overall, in terms of kind of documenting a time in American history and the unfortunate parallels in terms of like even like some of the rhetoric which is which is demonstrated from people and elected politicians in the film and how it remains sadly still very relevant um it works on a couple of levels that you would look for in this sort of thing so i got a lot out of it and i think that one can one complaint i've got about i don't even know if i'd call it a complaint is, is very minor i think it's a very compelling documentary about something that really i didn't know about at all well, as the token American here who, um, you know, uh, probably knows a lot about this, I'm actually, and maybe just ha has watched, I mean, I don't know enough, but um, but I, I, there's no, I, I did notice how like Bertha Dockhouse was like promoting it online and saying, learn more information about MLK and FBI. And by watching it, I was like, what, you know, maybe it's just being privy to like lots of documentaries on cable TV where they're, you know, stipulating this kind of, behavior by the FBI. This wasn't like new news to me. It wasn't something that I had never, I mean, perhaps the details of it, but something that I wouldn't have imagined or expected. I also, um, I know who Clarence Jones is because I have some work in a piece I did about his book about speechwriting of MLK. So it was really great to hear. And I guess I had a personal interest of that as well as working with the Riverside Church where Martin Luther King gave that really famous speech. So, um, so I, the archive of that, and so the, I guess maybe my understanding of this made me kind of follow the story in that way. I have to say as a documentary filmmaker who's been doing a lot of stuff with archive, the, in my head, I was just like, wow. <laughs> like, hey, how expensive was all that footage? But just how did they get all of that? It was just incredible amount of, um, for me, the editing of that, like that archive footage and that kind of just seamlessly going to tell the story with the voiceover worked in a way that as everyone says, it's not like this new novel thing. I think it's a little bit more on the lines of, you know, Senna and Amy and, you know, this kind of, that was kind of novel a few years ago when the idea of like, let's not show the interviewers, um, you know, but, but, but we only had three or four people that were part of that personal story. And in this case, it, you know, did it work exactly well on who was talking at that time? I don't know, but I thought it worked well with the fact that the footage was really um, powerful. It also made me again, I mean, you know, in a time when I think I'm so uneasy about what's going on in the world, you know, watching archive footage of peaceful protests and leaders who, you know, are, are represent, are just, you know, are amazing examples. I think it's a really important piece for people to watch. And I think it's a really, it's really incredibly resonant at this stage for all of the things that have gone on this year, but like just to, just to watch it. Uh, I think it was incredibly well done at least in terms of the editing and the music and the archive component, let alone the massive amount of research. I actually took a screen grab of all of the different archive places that like must've been used. So in that capacity, I, I really did 
I really did enjoy it. I think it's an important film to watch, um, you know, but do I think, yeah, I mean, not sure it, it broke bounds in terms of like, you know, have we were talking about, you know, new kinds of formats of, of documentary, I've certainly didn't maybe do that, but that didn't bother me with meeting Gorbachev either. So I think that was the kind of case we made there. Curious about Mark's thoughts. Sure. Um, I think it, it ends up raising lots of interesting questions about King as a person. And part of the documentary's thrust is that there's this um, cache of tapes that's going to be unveiled and declassified in 2027 that relates to um, King's extramarital affairs and the information that may or may not be contained within that. And they kind of debate at the end, what would the effect of this be? And they don't answer it and which is great because they can't and so part of the documentary is like raising a question to be dealt with at a later date and I think that's an important thing that documentaries can and should do instead of just giving and you know in the way that people use documentaries at the minute there's kind of this this problem of this is the truth the absolute truth nothing but the truth and we do need to be given like you know lenses in which to question things and I think that the documentary gives you a lens in which to question that those conclusions I think that's really interesting um Jim's point about the um, the identities of the voiceovers is really important to me, though, because there are clips in the film which speak to the fact that this information is not a new thing in the world over, but in America specifically. There are horrifying clips of Vox Pops um, involving sort of older white American citizens who say horrific things about Dr. King because it's in the newspapers. And as the point that Carrie's talking about, it's in the media too. It's in these FBI movies, um, which kind of valorize the FBI as an institution instead of seeing it as it is, as a repressive state apparatus. Um, and I think keeping the identities, or at least tells you the, the names. And so sometimes you can guess who the, what the affiliations are. What this does is it lets the archive drive the film, which I think is, you know, a fine operation and the way that it's been edited, as Amanda mentioned, it's by Laura Tomaselli is the editor and it's an amazing job compiling the clips of Dr. King, the interviews, the, um, the clips of Jagger Hoover. Um, I, I will complain slightly about the, um, the newly shot footage of people looking at tape recorders in FBI offices, which are really just like silly sets. Like, is that really needed? I don't know. But, um, what it does, it doesn't distract you from the, you know, appreciating the, you know, the, the skillfully assembled montage. I think that's, that's a fine job that's done there. However, what it does do also at the same time is it takes away a certain amount of responsibility from the viewer because a viewer in a documentary constantly have, has to uh, weigh the value of truth claims. And if you're having, if, because that's slightly been taken away from you, um, you're not really getting that chance to examine your biases, although it looks as though you are. I, I don't really think it is. I think it's kind of, it, it ends up making everything retroactive so that you get that bit at the end where people reveal their affiliations and you need to cast back over the film as you've just saw it. I felt I could see the reasoning behind it. I think it's, it's fine reasoning, but it also does take away a certain amount of responsibility from the viewer and responsibility in watching a documentary is huge. It's a huge part of of watching them, of appreciating them, of talking about them, of thinking about them. Um, I will uh, also say that I love the bit of footage of Dr. King talking about the effects of the civil rights movement for black Americans. He says that 
it gives people a somebodiness and not only a wonderful line but there's an amazing documentary that um, I think is around on the web at the minute by Madeline Anderson called I Am Somebody and I think that links to it specifically. Um, I will say that I think this being framed uh, at times as a personal vendetta on uh, J. Edgar Hoover's part against Dr. King, I think foregoes an opportunity to connect this in a profounder sense with the history of you know, the repression of black people, the repression of anybody who challenges white supremacy in the States. I feel like just the emphasis of that part of the film's direction I felt like missed uh, you know, the opportunity to link it to that wider point, which I think one of the, the historians who's interviewed does, she does a commendable job at the end of the film, at the very end of the film, uh, linking it to that. And I thought that should actually probably be um, just in argumentative terms, I thought that should have been a much more thoroughly integrated part in the thrust of the narrative. But um, it's very commendably put together. As I say, that, that archive job is enormous. And I think it kind of, it sutures you into place. You know, we talk about suture and film narrative. Documentaries do this too. And I'm sometimes wary of it because it can too easily, you can get caught in a really nice editing rhythm and the leaps and the joins between things it can serve as propaganda sometimes. It doesn't here, obviously, because there's critical intelligence behind it. But um, I, I will say the scariest thing is the thing that's just been, I just mentioned, which is the, those clips of people and the clips of the old woman with the photograph saying, this is a photograph of Dr. King at communist training school. It's like, well, is that all the evidence that you have? Yes, and I know it. And it's that like entrenchment of um, argument, which we see all the time today. And it's, I think the documentary's got a good analysis of that, while at the same time I have some questions about the, you know, the use of um, the use of those interviewees. But all in all, I think an, an impressive, an impressive archival act of assembly. Great. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the only thing I would I would add to that, or or sort of carry on from from that, is is that ending of the film. Um, and I guess it does shift its kind of form very suddenly from the archival to these um, kind of talking head interviews with um, sort of significant historians and, and people weighing in on the question of this 2027 file. And I guess in spite of, or, or as well as everything that I come away from in terms of the, the, the um, historical FBI Martin Luther King kind of struggle aspect of the film I have found myself more focusing on that question of like what is going to happen even when this file comes out and I think particularly because of the time that we live in now of this like cancel culture and of sort of like misinformation on the internet and you can just see that uh, that narrative pe people just kind of running away with it um, and I think it's such an issue of, um, in particular for people who represent, be it minority groups or kind of um, uh, uh, the sort of like less dominant uh, narrative group in the time is that one individual has to stand for like everyone. And so Martin Luther King almost wasn't, wouldn't have been allowed to be a fallible man. Like he had to be, this perfect, just Christian um, civil rights God, but he was a man um, and perhaps he did let his uh, kind of temptations get the better of him. 
Um, but I guess it does sort of uh, scare me that that could completely end up rewriting the narrative of, of who he is in kind of seven years from now, for example. Um, uh, and I guess that also makes me feel like, I think one of the other things about the film is that I found myself, I guess, kind of wanting more, like I kind of wanted the like the next, like a, a, another part of like what, be it the FBI is then continuing kind of look into um, uh, someone else who comes who comes after Martin Luther King. I think probably because we're in the age of uh, documentary series that I'm, I'm used to getting like 10 hours on every topic, that this one was definitely one where I was like, yeah, I could do another, five six seven hours on this uh, on the same uh, subject matter but i i did i really enjoyed it and i think completely to what you guys say about the the editing and the the amount of content uh in there it's very rich definitely one you can kind of go back go back to and, and pour over again um, and pick out even more more details yeah i mean i i i see where everyone's coming with the you know the, the, the i guess so to like i said I, I think to me it comes in the way that it was push the way that it's promoted and the way people are interested in things and the way people will watch something is having to do with this these personalities so like J. Edgar Hoover being a person it, it's it's you know that's done really bad things in the FBI and what they have done you know it, it falls into this like very common as we all know like uh, obsession with conspiracies and the grassy knoll and all that you know that kind of stuff so it's that I think that was driving that thing but I that the film to me didn't wasn't about that as much and I think there was like you said I think I liked the fact that there was almost two separate narratives going on one of this conversation between these five interviews that were were I thought artfully chosen I mean you have you know someone who was very close to Dr. Um, Martin Luther King but also someone who was an FBI and I didn't know who yeah and then you could tell there was art but you could there was that that frame that would not have been told through that footage and then the archive footage which certainly told a different story but also told a story that that was so important like now you know like they're like to just it's so resonant right now for me and um and and I thought they just I personally thought they worked very well together and enjoyed the end just at the end we brought those questions out you know of of what's going to happen in the future when these get, you know, when these get, uh, and you know, announced, and and I thought, you know, I, in any case, I, I, I really, I, I could have liked, you know, I, I've seen a lot of, of films that have done worse in terms of taking on such a such an important topic, and I think it was respectfully and artfully done for sure. Just to connect it to a couple of other um, films too, because Pollard, I think was one of the, he was involved, I think he was an editor of the um, the Civil Rights series, Eyes on the Prize, which right. I think is on YouTube. Um, and that's very long. So that would fulfill uh, Carissa's like 10 hour thing. Um, but there's a, there's a really great um, archival documentary called Let the Fire Burn by Jason Osder from a few years ago, which is about the move bombings in 1985 in Philadelphia. And that similarly has um, just an incredible recreation of the period in amazing, exacting, horrifying, pit of the stomach, sort of engulfing detail. Um, and I thoroughly recommend that if people are looking for other things to go along with, you know, similarly artfully assembled archive documentaries. Well, um, worth checking out MLK FBI on BFI Player Now. Um, so check it out and let us know what you think. Mm -hmm.
if it's Nate, I'm as ready as a person can be. After the fight, we're all coming back here for the champ's victory party. Don't be late. Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. You know I'm the greatest. That's right. Jim Brown takes the ball. Your record is going to stand the test of time. How's everybody feeling tonight? All together, yeah. <laughs> New heavyweight champion of the world. Say, hey, champ, you don't suppose you could sign an autograph? Yeah, of course, man. Give him an autograph, Jim. Actually, Mr. Cook. <laughs> oh, sure thing, brother. Don't you think it's about time to party? Tonight is a chance for us to reflect. You mean no one else is coming? Well, this is off to a hopping start. You all are a bright and shining future. You need to understand what is at stake here. Everything's not so black and white like you make it out to be. But we are fighting for our lives. So the next film we're going to review is One Night in Miami, um, directed by Regina King. Uh, Jim, tell us a little bit about this film. So this one's been kicking around on the festival circuit for a while. Um, And basically what it is, is it documents, as the title would indicate, One Night in Miami. And it follows four major figures in Black American history, let's say. and the people that it focuses on are Malcolm X, uh, the at the time Cassius Clay, because this is um, before Muhammad Ali's joining of the Nation of Islam. And that's kind of a central point in the film, actually, is his relationship to that, along with uh, Malcolm X's, uh, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke. And basically it takes place after um, one of Clay at the time's fights, and it altered, it's very much kind of a chamber piece, largely, you know, with the odd exception, taking place in a motel room. And it's basically, I, it's based on a stage play, right? I'm right in saying that, yeah. yeah. And yeah. basically, which goes to explain the setting somewhat, but basically it's these four men exchanging their views about what they are representing and fighting for in the civil rights movement of the time, how they are seen and perceived and how they are treated in American society at the time. And I'll I'll leave it there for the moment because I'm interested to see what people think of it. I think this is one of these films where it could easily have ended up very, very staid and one note. And I don't think it is. I think it's extremely well done by Regina King. I think she uses space and angles really well to add momentum and import to the interactions that these men have. I think the acting performances are really good in the sense that nobody here is doing an impersonation. Uh, it's nobody who's trying to ape kind of the memory of these these men. And the way that they play off each other, not just in terms of like the, um, the chemistry of the performances, I think they're very good, but also in what they choose to talk about. And it never feels forced on the nose to me and i really i really got into it and i think it got across something important but also engaging um so i'll leave it there because i think i think there's actually plenty to talk about with this one um and we'll maybe start off with mark about what you what you found and how you thought the film went sure thing so um on the nature of it as a play first of all because it's kent powers um who has done the screenplay of his own play 
which seems to be a variation. It's two things at once. It's a variation on um, Tom Stoppard's uh, play Travesties, which is um, you know a bunch of significant people in a single setting. Um, in this case, that idea is kind of animated by the fact of this photograph, which shows um, Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, um, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke all in the same room together. And the play is extrapolated from that image. Um, it's I think it's Henry Cooper who he defeat who Cassius Clay defeats, and um, the film then follows them back in their celebration to a hotel in Miami, and then they have these debates, which are mostly about um, cultural politics and the cultural politics of their positions as black men in America, and I think primarily the contest is between. Sam Cooke and Malcolm X, because they have such divergent ideas about how to operate within the society as black men. Um, Malcolm X has uh, antipathy towards everything in the society. He sees his position as oppositional, whereas Sam Cooke sees his as getting to the top of various um, industries, creative industries, and that being a way to express something which, you know, in the in the course of the movie will be related to the civil rights movement. Um, at first, I was thinking that the film was kind of constrained. There's this uh, horrible moment in the beginning with Jim Brown in the South, which has a real sting in the tail. Um, but up to the point where they get to the motel room, I was, I was thinking that there's something a little bit constrained about it up until the point where Cassius has just won the Cassius Clay has just won the fight and there's a quick shot of Malcolm X's camera and it's as though that there's a certain flatness in the staging of this there's a certain like constraint in the framing of it and that quick shot is really important because this is all dramatically extrapolated from a photograph that Malcolm X took or you know a photograph showing him taking a photo. And so it's like the whole of this moment is being seen through Malcolm X's viewfinder. And I thought that was a really neat, dramatic moment. And it links directly to the final shot in the film, which is this like double mediation um, and this reflection on the way that the, the media has, um, you know, a role in the, um, the creation of these images and the images of these men, I should say. Um, I think once you get into the hotel room, I think Jim's right. There's a lot of very creative decoupage. There's a lovely rhythm to the way that their arguments are playing out. King, Regina King is really good at finding a new angle, a new emotive angle on a certain person's argument. And although it's mostly between Sam Cooke and Malcolm X and their performances are completely game and completely... Um, you know, ready to be totally reactive to each other. And there's great interaction between scene partners here. Um, it's, I'm, I'm sort of thinking that the, the performance I appreciate most is actually Aldous Hodge as Jim Brown. He kind of stealth underacts everybody, but he's really, really good. He's kind of like the guide because he's already been through these arguments, it seems. He's already ha like had these conversations with himself about his position as a a superstar who's moving to Hollywood as a, a, you know, a football player, an American football player who's kind of segueing into a Hollywood career. He's already had these arguments internally. He knows um, the same things that Sam Cooke is going through. And so he kind of like moves sort of adjacent, but at key moments interacting with the, the other two. I will say that the three performances 
there are three performances which are excellent and one I think is lacking, unfortunately. And that's Eli Goree as um, Cassius Clay, because I think there are three acts of like actually inhabitation happening around him. And then I'm going to disagree with you slightly, Jim. I do think that's just a, a very you know, a serviceable impersonation, I think. I don't think it's a great performance, but also in the course of the film, it isn't actually that important because he is like the, he's, his event is the one which frames the story of the film, but he's actually kind of sidelined in the discussions because it's about him joining the Nation of Islam. But he is kind of just at the side listening to the debates. He has a, it does have a moment where he, um, in the car, it's a liquor store, which is important. But in comparison with the other performances, which are so controlled and so inhabited, he does seem just to have a, just a slightly less, um, I don't know, slightly lower levels of reassurance in his own acting when compared to the other three, which is, you know, it's a light limitation, but it, I think it is there. I'll, I'll come back to that, but we'll, uh, we'll, <laughs> sure. we'll see what Amanda thinks for us. Well, I I rather agree with b- both of you. I mean, I think it was I think it's a again we we talked a lot about this idea of like translating theater into a film, and you know especially when they're in this kind of like insular space and like one room, you know, plays. And I I think this was like artfully done, and I think everything it was quite beautiful. It wasn't it wasn't something I had known about, and it definitely I think creatively is interest like you know it. it it's in a piece of in its own. I mean, it obviously got me really interested in the stories of, of these four people and what happened like shortly thereafter, given that the next day as the film shows, you know, um, you know, Cassius Clay changes his name and, and joins and, but then all, you know, the quote at the end and, and sort of like prefaces what was to happen for all of them going in the future. But I, overall, I think the film is, is, is really well structured. It's very beautiful. And I thought most of the, I, you know, I, I thought the acting, I, I didn't really pinpoint um, the Cassius Clay character not being, um, you know, as good as the others. Um, I thought they all were fairly even, but, um, you know, I, I, I hear your point. Um, I, I, it def- definitely didn't seem like his, his um, which was obviously could or should, and again, that's probably the source material, um, that he wasn't the most, you know, it was an important po- night for him. For many reasons and so um but it didn't seem like that was as big of a part of the story um but overall i really liked the film and i, I suppose i wasn't expecting to as much because it's you know it's a but um but i really did so i'll just to pick up on the on the on the uh, um eli gory is cassius clay i think what i will say is i think the other three i, I will concede that the other three performances are stronger I think. Um, and the way in which I would take that is they are more memorable. Um, but I think to a certain extent, I think the film set up for it to be that way. Um, I wouldn't say I found the performances clearly lacking, but he kind of acts that the role in this story that has been kind of created from that photo, he kind of acts as a lightning rod for a lot of the concerns of the other men, right? Because one of the one of the key clashes is or one of the main points of tension let's say is malcolm x's kind of fracturing relationship at the time with the nation of islam and but you know there's references made to the way that elijah muhammad the leader of the nation lives and things like that and i think that the way the way that these characters all bounce off one another to me captures really well this idea that 
you know, movements are not a homogenous entity, right? There's a very different set of opinions within about what is the best way to advance a cause. One thing I'm definitely going to agree with um, 100% with you is uh, Aldous Hodge's Jim Brown. I think he really does kind of like fly under the, you know, it's the least showy performance, right, as well mm-hmm. as part of it, right? Because obviously, like, you know, the, the performance as uh, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, like the, the man was so kind of flamboyant in his kind of use of language as it was, right? It's very hard for that to not come through in the film or to have a restrained performance as him, particularly in this context. And I think the most memorable performance is probably going to be Kingsley Benadier's Malcolm X, right? And I think he gets he also gets kind of most of the most of the screen time that doesn't take place in the the motel room, right? When we're referring to other instances. But the glue that kind of holds a lot of these interactions together is Aldous Hodge's Jim Brown. And it's not the first time Aldous Hodge has done this, right? I mean, I'm fairly new to his work, but I would argue he did exactly the same thing in another film that we reviewed on the show in Clemency, right? Where it's very much a supporting role, but he does that same thing where it's a very strong performance that holds a lot of things together, but it's not a very showy one, but he deserves enormous credit for, you know, actually kind of, allowing the film to revolve around him because there's a, the, the the main confrontations mark says i think the main tension point is between um leslie odom jr sam cook and malcolm x as played by kingsley benadier but the way that they kind of tease out less heated moments about what these men's um opinions and feelings are about the way that uh, the, the other the other men in the group are acting and what they represent the way they tease that out is through conversations with Aldous Hodges, Jim Brown, and I think it's 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 a good performance, but also the script and the way it's been filmed kind of constructs that really well, and it flows really very well. I think to compare it with a another stage adaptation, which covers some similar themes that we did in the last show in Marini's Black Bottom, which I think we were all very keen on, but for me, this is this is the more skillfully constructed film for me. Um, there's plenty to commend. The performance of the other film, and it is a good film. I think we all agreed about that. But for me, in terms of taking that stage setup, you know, this single location, these group of people interacting, for me, this is the one which is paced and constructed a little bit more skillfully for me. And I think the film goes to a level above that one as a result of it. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I think I was wrong on the um, the fight. I think the first fight, which takes place in the openings with Henry Cooper, it's then Sonny Liston, which is the, the big fight, which are celebrating the result of afterwards. And I was just thinking about their their contests, which I think are sort of the heart of the film. And it relates to uh, this idea that they're trying to like provoke each other over the course of like actually disagreeing with each other. Um, it's as though the contest is motivated by real love that they share particularly between uh cook and malcolm x there's like this real although they like disagree over methods and they disagree over their each other's position um it's as though they're trying to promote provoke each other into greatness and um towards the ending of the film you see that like that has been kind of secured in a way and it's um sort of relates to a ralph waldo emerson line which is that truly speaking it is not instruction but provocation that i can receive from another soul and that the way that the film is structured sort of like teases that line significance out for the film. All right. So uh, One Night in Miami is currently on Amazon Prime. So uh, check it out if you can.
So I'm here with uh, Alison Gardner of Glasgow Film Festival. Um, the film festival has moved fully online this year. That wasn't always the plan. There was going to be a, a, a hybrid format, which I'd, I'd like to talk to you about in a minute. But it's interesting for me to be coming to Glasgow Film Festival and it being in, online, because the last Glasgow Film Festival is actually the last film festival I intend, attended in person at all. Uh, and I've only been to a physical cinema twice since that film festival, so it really does feel like it kind of marks a whole a whole year since normality for cinema going. How did you approach programming for the festival in 2021? Because obviously, I know from intros you've done with films before that you know you go to the likes of Toronto and other film festivals and see what's playing there, as well as having other stuff screening i'm just wondering with with so many things moving online and travel being difficult and all the rest of it how did you approach it how did you approach it this year that was different well actually you're uh, one of a number of uh, people who've (laughs) said that gff20 was their last uh, experience of any type of festival and probably was because about three weeks or two and a half weeks after we finished the festival, we, we then went into lockdown on the, in the full lockdown on the 23rd of March. So yes, um, we began realizing in about May that the world had changed um, significantly, especially around the film festival landscape. So we were working with London Film Festival, for example, um, and talking to them about, they were talking about hybrid model, we were sharing intel, they were very generous uh, um, with us in terms of of sharing um, uh, what they were going to do, and we were working exactly along the same lines of a hybrid festival. So we were able to watch a number of films at virtual film festivals, so it was virtual can. Virtual can was not fun, can I just say. (laughs) The rosé I was serving myself at night was really not up to par. <laughs> not, not quite um, the same. <laughs> not quite the same. Um, I mean, it, it was it's interesting to do because um, uh, people then become much more used to it. And there was virtual Toronto as well, so mm. that we were able to see films in that way. We also had a, a key number of submissions. But because we were looking for about... A th- we were only looking at a third of the normal amount of feature films that we do, we were really making sure that every film that's in the online festival, although originally, as you said, was going to be a hybrid festival, um, we're making sure that every film that, that's in there is one that we truly, truly love and is championed by a member of the programme team. So uh, Chris, Kumar, uh, Alan or myself. So we were really making sure that that these films were ones that we were passionate about. And so fully online now which has its advantages how, how did you approach the logistics of it because you've said that obviously quite early on you knew that like the world had changed i think as a lot of us knew particularly in terms of you know the crowded spaces that film festivals can be um is that what brought about the gff at home program you've been running um i'm just wait because obviously that's been that's been great but i'm just wait, was that kind of intended as sort of an advanced pilot almost for how you thought you were going to have to run this year's film festival properly. You have nailed it completely on the head, Jim. Yes, it was an advanced pilot. We had been doing a lot of work with distributors and keeping um, our audience engaged at Glasgow Film Theatre with the staff. So we were doing Twitter chats, we were doing watch-alongs, we were doing a whole bunch of stuff, lots of really great activity. So we we were conscious that we wanted to offer Glasgow Film Theatre audience is the same curation 
that we would normally offer at GFT and keep in touch with our audiences. And then we thought about the festival. So we invested in this Glasgow Film at Home platform, which is really easy to use, actually. Mm. I mean, for somebody who's technically inept like myself and has to require her children to help her with nearly everything technical, including her phone, it's really easy to use. You create an account, then you can buy films, you can swipe it onto your TV. It's all very, very easy to do, apparently. Um, for the two films that I've watched, it was super, I was able to do it myself. So that's great. But uh, we'd invested in that platform. We started using it in um, November, early November for Glasgow Film Theatre, because I don't like to trial anything at a film festival. That it's is a bad idea, move. Yeah. <laughs> bad, bad move. <laughs> what you really need to do, and I wanted the learning, and I wanted to see how the user journey was. And you know, whenever you start something new, it's never perfect. But I wanted it to be as perfect as it could be by the time the festival came around, because there are a lot of film choices on there. You've seen from the programme, there's a lot of great movies in this festival. It's a finely curated programme and it's available to everybody in the UK. On the on the topic of the the curation and the program itself, that was something I wanted to ask you about because this 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 predates this festival. So I I think I first attended Glasgow Film Festival in 2017 uh, after I moved back to Scotland. And one of the things that struck me about the the program is the character of it because it has a very good balance of international features stuff not in the english language stuff that's um you know from north america and some of the big festivals there but also that focus on scottish filmmakers and local talent even down, kind of down to the the glasgow level what 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 do you aim for? is is that what you're aiming for with the the character of the festival is that at the forefront with the the programming choices because it, it's a it's a feeling i get from glasgow that i don't cards on the table i don't always get from other british festivals um and i'm just wondering if if that's how long that's been the case if that's a focus for the, the programming effort, basically. I take that as a huge compliment, Jim. So Alan and I started curating the festival in 2007. Oh my goodness, that's so long ago. Um, and we decided that we wanted it to be a, a broad church so that there was something for everyone. It really wanted to reflect the programme that is GFT all year round. Mm. So we partnered up with Fright Fest, for example, which is a big success because they bring out a, a you know a, a new audience. But a lot of that audience from Fright Fest has migrated to come to the fest, the whole festival, for example. And so um, because they're film fans. And so really it's a festival for film fans. There's, you know, even in this festival, there's the, the high-end hitters like um, Minari that people really want to see, which is brilliant, by the way. The Mauritanian, you know, creation stories, those sort of films. But in amongst that is all the, the, the sort of small, you know, gems from in the documentary section, like Castro Spies, for example, and Enemies of the State. Enemies of the State, fabulous fabulous stunning documentary really not to be missed and a European premiere and then though so there's something in there for everybody that we think so we, we try not to prejudge people's tastes so what we try to do is is make sure that it's a broad church but really have those nuggets of great international fantastic films you know 
some of the high-end hitters that people are really looking forward to, genre fair around Fright Fest, and then obviously try and support our local industry in terms of Scottish to give them a platform so that they're able to showcase their work. Because Glasgow Film Festival now has a really good international reputation, which is really great. And this year, for example, some of our Scottish films will probably be showing at Shanghai Film Festival. So we're working in conjunction with them. And we have, for example, the world premiere of Polystyrene, I am a, I am a cliche. And then it's showing its, its, mm. its um, North American pre uh, premiere at South by Southwest, for example. So there's lots of things in there. Glasgow audiences, and I don't mean people just necessarily from Glasgow, but Glasgow Film Festival audiences have a very um, cultured taste in the sense that they're really willing to try a lot of things that we put in front of them and for that I am eternally grateful. Yeah no I, I think there's probably a few film festivals I can think of where you'll be able to watch something like um, you know the Mauritanian or Minari or something like that and then the same same week you'll be able to watch like a Gaelic language feature film um, you know for instance I think that, that that's kind of what stri strikes me about it. The, um, the idea of those partner screens, is that something that you would maybe like to revisit when we're back closer to some sort of normality? Because that's something that I've seen a lot of festivals doing. Is that something you'd like to revisit? Absolutely. I do think that that um, once this festival's over, we'll be re-looking, re as we normally do, at what the successes are. I think there will always be a hybrid version now. I think there will always be an online element to it, um, which is great. Um, I don't think it'll ever replace the being in GFT1, for example, with, you know, a full audience, you know, I don't think that'll ever replace that. And that's something that we all will miss, but that will come back. You know, we will be sitting in GFT inside its magnificence, enjoying films on the big screen. That will definitely happen. But then there will be now sidebars, partner cinemas, online so we need to look at how that works all together we were so delighted because the partner cinemas were so open they've been so fantastic and i really wanted to thank all of them they came on board very willingly they were super happy with the choice of films that we gave them that they would be would have been showing but unfortunately when we set all this up in the beginning <laughs> in october when cinemas were mm -hmm. open obviously i don't have a crystal ball i did not know that things would get a lot worse and in between Christmas and New Year whilst I was scheduling GFT physical screenings I did have a wobble I had a good greet because <laughs> no. I thought this is not going to happen I solved that problem by going for a long walk coming back having a very large glass of red wine <laughs> and then rethinking and at that point we decided before we went into this lockdown that was announced on the 4th of January or the 5th of January, I decided and spoke to the team and said, we are pivoting online. So on the Monday, we decided to pivot. We announced it to the public on Friday because in between Monday and Friday, we were contacting all our venues. We were contacting yeah. all our filmmakers. We were trying to make sure that everybody could pivot. And that was a big, big job. Um, but the team really, really absolutely worked incredibly hard to do that. And we didn't lose many films that were cinema only titles. The, mm. the distributors, the sales agents, the filmmakers themselves have been incredibly supportive. So that has really worked for us. So it was a big job, but because we had everything in place, 
it wasn't a, ma a mammoth task. I've seen a couple of tweets by audience members who are really glad that we took that decision early on and that there wasn't, we sold tickets Confusion for the physical and then had to refund them. I just genuinely thought making a firm decision at this point is the best way forward for the team, the filmmakers, and the audience. Yeah, without getting too political, I think there's a lot of institutions that could learn from that. Well, <laughs> but anyway. I, I wouldn't, couldn't possibly comment, Jim. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think I speak for... Um, a lot of audiences when I, I look forward to being able to be back in person when it's safe to do so. I think one of my abiding memories of Glasgow Film Festival is, uh, I think one of the first films I saw at Glasgow Film Festival was Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. Um, and I do just kind of sitting in GFT1 stunned silence as it finished. And it's just, it's, it's odd just sitting in that kind of like theatre full of people kind of in stunned silence. You can't really recreate that at home. So no, I think really we, we look forward Lynn, to when we can do Lynn it. Then Lynn came on and did a, a QA. One of the added advantages of being online, and let's be honest here, online will never replicate that feeling. And I'm not even trying to replicate that feeling. But what we are trying to do is we're trying to offer the same brilliant curatorial mm -hmm. choice available to lots of people across the whole of the UK um, and sometimes people can't travel to Glasgow in years where there isn't a pandemic mm -hmm. you know for example for no. a whole variety of reasons so this all opens up the whole program to them and we're also um, doing Q&A's recorded um, Q&A's with um, directors actors etc producers around the films and they'll be available as well so you know, we're trying to create those added extra elements that we normally add at Glasgow uh, Film Theatre mm -hmm. when we're not in a, a pandemic year. Um, but I do think it's certainly worth everyone taking a punt on seeing the films. The tickets go on sale on Monday and we've created um, bundles, for example, because online, obviously, mm -hmm. The tickets are priced $9.99 individually. But for example, you could watch all of the five South Korean films. You can watch all of the six Fright Fest films. You can watch all of the six Audience Award films. And then you can also buy your picks where you're sent a code and then you put that code in and then you can choose your films okay. from the general program as well. So we've tried to uh, make it as easy as possible for people to access great, great films. Great. I think uh, to, fin to finish off with, so I'd, I've seen a couple of the films on, I've been fortunate enough to see at some other festivals and uh, on screen or a couple of the films that are screening and I can back up, back you up on the thing that it is, it is an excellent programme. I suppose as uh, one of the festival's organisers, just to finish off with, what would be some of the kind of personal highlights that you've you see on the print now obviously obviously you think the whole program is great right because that you're, but no, no, in terms of like specific point. things what would you say people that's should keep true. an eye out some for? of the things alan chooses i don't like <laughs> <laughs> usually what happens usually what happens is when we're, in, when we're in gft somebody will come up and say oh, i've just seen that film alice and i really didn't like it say, well, alan chose that one and obviously i told him not to um but that's the that's the joy of having it but no I, um I think the whole, pro I think the program as a whole is really excellent in the sense that it really does something for everyone. And that's always what we aim for. I mean, I really liked things like, um, I really like Big Versus Small. It's fantastic, a really great documentary about the um, 
first Portuguese um, big big wave surfer. It's a really great documentary. It's also because I'm frightened of surfing and sharks and waves, so I was watching it completely like mesmerized. But it's not just about that. It's about her journey. She goes to Finland. She deep dives in water, you know, in dark lakes. It's, a, it's, it's something I just never, never put myself through. So I'm in complete admiration for people who really take their sports to these extreme levels. Beautifully uh, made a film by um, Mina Dufton, who's a Finnish director. Um, I think also I like The Toll. I like a good Welsh comedy. <laughs> Michael Smiley's in that. You can never go wrong with Michael Smiley. No, I, I don't think you can. You're in very good hands. Um, in terms of the documentaries, again, I would um, really mention Enemies of the State and Castro Spies, really to the top documentaries, I think, that, that people will see this year. Um, I'm also looking forward to, which I haven't seen, which Alan has seen, which is um, Truman in Tennessee as well, which is great. Um, I'm also looking forward to seeing people's reaction to Black Bear. Um, I really liked it. Some people not so much, but I think that's a great festival film. I really loved it. I really enjoyed it. And then if any people who don't like Riders of Justice really should never attend a festival. It's a great <laughs> film. Mads Mikkelsen has the best beard ever. It's so yeah, well, great. That, that, that's what struck me the still for it, actually. I've never seen Mads Mikkelsen with a beard. That, and it's, he, he pulls and it off as impressively as he does it, many other things. It's quite a violent <laughs> film. Um, Anders Thomas Jensen has, has is a festival favourite. We've shown, I think, nearly all his films at Glasgow Film Festival. I'd have to look back at that. But um, he did a great film that people loved called Men and Chicken which was absolutely fantastic, went down really well. Riders of Justice, so violent, but so funny. It was one of those films I was watching um, and I was guffawing out loud. My husband was saying to me, what are you laughing at? I was like, this is private festival business, nothing to do with you. <laughs> so there's some of my top tips. All right, great. Well, um, Hopefully everything goes smoothly. It's looking great. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I think we'll we'll be doing a preview show for the festival on the, the Cinetopia radio show and taking a look at some of the features. Um, and I'm sure it will all go excellently. So thank you for talking to me, Alison. Thank you very much. And just remember, tickets are now on sale. So don't forget, there's limited availability. So if you really want to see something, buy it in advance. Um, so now is the part of the show when we uh, rec we share recommendations for short films that are currently online. Um, Jim, how about you? What's your recommendation this month? Yeah, so the the, the short film I'm going to recommend is one that I've been trying to catch for a while, actually, because it was playing at um, Raindance Festival and a few others. I think it was screened at Sundance way back, like a year ago, is uh, The Long Goodbye, directed by Anil Korea, um, which is starring... Riz Ahmed, uh, and I've picked it for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a really interesting, powerful short film. It's about 12 minutes long. But on top of that, we reviewed uh, Mogul Mowgli on the show a wee while ago, and it shares some, uh, it's got some thematic overlap with that. And it concludes with a piece of uh, poetry, I think you would probably call, call it in this context. But the reason it actually is one of the tracks which features in Mogul Mowgli and it's got a similar theme but this time it's through a completely different lens it starts off with kind of 
you know, just kind of like general domestic day-to-day chaos, and then it turns into something which is a lot more dystopian and darker uh, to finish off. I think it's a really powerful short film, and I think it links up quite nicely with the themes of that film. So if you enjoyed that, I would definitely check it out, but also it could serve as kind of a gateway to that other stuff as well. Uh, and Anil Korea has also got a film that's going to be at Glasgow Film Festival, which has been kicking around for a bit, uh, Surge, so it would be a way to get tuned into and tuned into their work as well um so i think that's what i'll go with recommend this month it is available online for free but if you want to check out with some other short films it's also going to be screening at london short film festival online on the 21st thursday great and i'm, uh, guess, my- I'm guessing from carissa's reaction that you were going to do that <laughs> yeah well guess well guess oh, oh, no. <laughs> it is the second you started saying you're like it's been screwed it's screened at like rain dance and i was like oh it's- <laughs> He's going to say the long goodbye. <laughs> it is great, though. It is great. Yeah. And I am obsessed with Riz Ahmed at the moment. Next up is Mark. Mark, do uh, you have a recommendation now? Sure thing. So I have a short film called Stay Awake, Be Ready. It's directed by Fan Tian An. And it's a, a short film done in a single take. It's set on a street corner in, I think, Saigon. Definitely in Vietnam. and. At first, just a single angled take of, of, you know, building, brown building, brown streets lit up by nightlights and the lights of various food stands that kind of, you know, found on the corners and people kind of revelers out for the, it's, it could be a weekend, could be a weekend evening. It's, it, it feels like that it has that kind of atmosphere. Um, people are sitting next to the food stands eating drinking there's a car crash that happens and everybody stops off screen of course just to the just to the left of the screen everybody stops a little bit of commotion then they get on with it again and there are just small focal points that become important um there's a wee boy who is a fire breather kind of apprentice fire breather who starts practicing breathing flames there's a man who just wants to listen to his ipod but keeps getting people bugging him for his attention there's a woman trying to hawk free beer and there's a potential pickpocket but each time that there's a new uh, sort of point of attention the camera reframes ever so subtly and eventually moves forward to this one table where these three men are sat and I think it's it's got this amazing color palette these like brown and amber hues that are kind of reflecting off of the off of the brown and black streets there's this like lovely soundtrack of like just bustling activity and um you know just revelers out on a night don't know when it is um having a good time in a public space which you know can you imagine um and as it moves in for the finish as it keeps on moving in it eventually comes very very close to the table and a very forthrightly artificial thing happens, but it's a great pleasure. And I think it's a lovely wee example of how to create staging and atmosphere all in the single choreographed take. I'm, I'm going to second this one because I see it because Carice will be able to give it. Is that not what won Best Film at Edinburgh Short Film Festival last year? Oh, is it? There is, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I reviewed. I reviewed it at the time. So excellent I, taste. I can second that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> an excellent short. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And Carice, would you like to go with a short film you? would recommend yeah so my short recommendation would be the fabric of you uh it's a stop motion animation by a scottish uh writer director josephine lahore self um that i think released a couple of years ago 
um it's absolutely beautiful like it's just detailed stop motion animation at its finest um uh it's about uh two mice uh, set in kind of 1950s, I think it's it's meant to be in America. You definitely get this kind of feeling of it of it being in America. Um, and one of the mice works at a tailor, like a sort of suit tailor shop. Um, and the other mouse comes in as a customer. Uh, and these two mice fall in love, but it's obviously during a time in which um, being openly gay is not a thing. Um, but they uh, they fall for one another. They have sex it's incredible like the the josephine i remember seeing her at a q a and she was like no one laughs when the mice have sex it's really funny they're puppets having sex um but yeah it's beautiful and then it's tragic and i won't kind of go into why that is because i don't want to spoil it um but yeah josephine's currently trying to get it submitted to uh the oscars i think it stands a bloody good chance if if she's able to so she's currently crowdfunding it now uh for the money to to submit it uh so maybe we'll we'll drop a link to that uh in the show uh and then otherwise there's a there's a few links online you can't watch the full film itself uh but you can watch extracts and you can watch trailer uh, and i'm sure once she's kind of got through the oscar bid she'll she'll pop it up online uh so yeah fabric of you josephine look herself you just mentioned the most controversial topic in, in, in Oscars. Podcast. Oh no. And chats around Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> fate, it's fate. I do try to entertain <laughs> myself. I do try. I fail frequently, but I do try. I was going to say, okay, you are doing so. I, I have a new conspiracy theory, not that we need any more <laughs> in the world, but that you potentially are secretly love the Oscars and are aiming to. Oh. Um, Amanda, there's absolutely no doubt. Like, no one cares more. It's the person who hates most more. It's Jim, Jim the because I read some tweet the other day about for your consideration or something, and I'm like, is he secretly? Um, <laughs> but it's like I said, it was like I said online the other day. I'm, I'm grateful for to you to responding for every tweet where I go on about the Oscars because nobody responds to anything now. I think they just reading off. Christ's sake, is he he's on this again. Yeah. <laughs> you're turning me into more of a lover of the Oscars, and I full on expect to have chatter of Oscars all year round from now on, just 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 to keep it up. But um, anyway, so uh, I'm gonna go with one, um, just because I think something that Mark brought up when we were talking about MLK FBI made me think about how important documentaries are in terms of telling history. And I've really been quite impassioned about the use of archive and not, and some, you know, one of my most favorite films, not a short, Showa, very long, is, you know, a film that doesn't use any archive film. But I'll say that one of the best documentary shorts of all time, if you haven't seen it, and I haven't already mentioned it, because it sounds like I might have in the past, is Alan Renee's Night and Fog. And um, it's it's certainly online somewhere um, within um, the thing. And it, it, is, it was a film that was filmed 10 years after, I believe, um, the, the World War II. Um, and uh, it, it really does mix the two of uh, modern day footage of Auschwitz with a mixture of archival footage and does it in such an artful way um, it, it, it started um, there, you know, there's quite a lot of films, like I said, Shoah and, and also uh, The Sorrow and the Pity that come after, after it, but it's, it's nightmarish. It's, it, really rep, it really makes you understand 
you know, what, you know, what the difference of, you know, using archive versus not and, and, and how, how documentaries are, are put together and um, the importance of obviously of um, telling the story correctly um, or, or the importance of a documentary filmmaker and retelling history. And um, I highly recommend it for so many reasons. Um, I won't tell you much more. Uh, check it out if you can, Night and Fong, Alan Renee, and all of his films, quite great. So um, that's me trying because I forgot to put, <laughs> put a new short film there. And uh, yeah, so that's this for, for, um, for this January and we'll be back in February uh, with uh, much more um, and hopefully um, a, a second one on the review of Glasgow film. Um, anyone have any last thoughts of, for the, our January episode? Just if you miss being in a bucket, bloody nose empty pockets, because I know it kind of fulfilled my longing to be sat nursing a pint bar side. Yes, absolutely. Me, me as well. And I'll probably definitely watch that one um, again this month <laughs> as I mourn, mourn not being able to have a social, social drinking. That was something I quite miss. Zoom does not, does not cut it. <laughs> I will say on the topic of documentaries and the topic of our interview with Alison Gardner um, and the Glasgow Film Festival, there is a documentary I've been looking forward to for a very long time playing there next month at City Hall, Frederick Wiseman's newest. Um, I'm promised that it is 274 minutes in length, so I'm, <laughs> I'm reserving an afternoon to commune with Frederick. Yeah, I've never watched Frederick Wiseman at home. I've only watched them in the cinemas. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that too. And uh, uh, yeah, that we'll, I'm sure we'll try to, to do that one next time if we can. Keep an eye out because there's a lot of stuff happening. I mean, because also between now and the next show, there's the Sundance Film Festival, which of course is happening mm -hmm. happening online uh, for, I think there's still some stuff going on in Utah, but it, it, like it's happening online for the first time. So there's a good chance to, you know run your eye over stuff at that maybe with this group we should do our uh, a new segment on the longest running like films that we like versus short films <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I had the opportunity to watch city hall i think at a festival aired in the year but i didn't trust myself to remain that you know when you're saying like cause it is different like if you're doing it at home versus like I, I, i'm not sure i trusted myself but i think if it's playing at glasgow we might just have to give it might just have to give it a bash oh yeah i, I say there's two against two against well, I don't know what Curry's thinks, but <laughs> two against Pasha. <laughs> yeah, I think the, momen the momentum so is with it at this point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I might, who knows how much time I have. I might go on a Weissman. Um, yeah, I need, I, there's a few I have missed over the years that I need to check out before. So I, I'll get myself. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a Weissman binge in the run up to it. So I'll report <laughs> back. Okay. It's also worth saying too that um, Sundance is also the Document Film Festival. Um, it's happening late January. So, um, you know, there's great stuff in that program too. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, we um, yeah, highly recommend that as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, and uh, as as usual, uh, we'd love for your feedback. So um, please write us on socials or um, email us at cinetopiashow at gmail.com and uh, see you guys all next month.